welcome to the Global Bandroom, a podcast that brings you stories, news and great guests from across the world of wind, brass and marching band. My name is Keith Kelly and I'm a band director and musician from the west coast of Ireland. Each episode I sit down with band musicians and directors from across the world to talk about their stories, their bands, the lessons they've been given and the lessons that they give and how they're making an impact on their bands and communities. Before we start, you can find out more about the podcast and the people and stories that we feature over at bandsofireland.com forward slash the global band room. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at the global band room. And now on with the show. Welcome back to the global band room, everybody. My name is Keith Kelly. Um, this is normally part of the show where I talk about the news around the band world, virtual band world and different projects people can get involved in, particularly now during the coronavirus. Um, but with everything happening around the world, I really didn't feel like that might be necessary today. So we're going to get straight into the interview now in a moment. What I would say is that uh, I took a, a week off two weeks ago. Uh, the intention was to... Um, start building towards a major project which we're going to announce and launch very very soon when the when the time is appropriate and right Um, but that ended up turning into a two-week break and even today I've really considered whether it's the right time to put out a podcast uh, at the moment Uh, the vast majority of people that listen to the podcast are based in the US and um, and really the, the question of um, Black Lives Matters and all of the various different um protests that are happening in the US. It is a global thing too. I mean, we see the statue that was taken down in the UK yesterday. We've seen um, some protests here in Ireland as well. So there is a, a global aspect to what's happening at the moment. But obviously, uh, a lot of it is really happening in the US at the moment. I really considered whether today was the right time to put out a podcast. Um, I'm putting it out there and I'm hoping that people um, enjoy the interview. The The Conselmer Inst- Institute Connect is launching today um, and the interview that I did with Randy Greenwell uh, was um, a lot about the, 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 the Conselmer Institute. Um, so hopefully you enjoy the, the, the podcast and the interview and the insights that Randy has there. Um, Please stay safe and stay well. Um, We will hopefully have news about bigger projects coming later in the week. But again, um, only if it's appropriate and only if the time is is right to kind of launch some of those projects. Please stay safe. Um, Head over to the the Global Band Room group. It's a brilliantly supportive group for various different projects and band things happening. um, And lots of really nice conversation and good people to meet over there too. So... Without any further ado, my interview, which was done two weeks ago, with Randy Greenwell. Randy, hi, how are you? Good, how are you, Keith? Good to see you. I'm, I'm not keeping bad. How are things in Indiana? Uh, they're, they're there. We're gradually starting to try to get back to, you know, some stores and restaurants opening up, at least to partial capacity. So we'll see how that goes and what it does with the COVID situation as, as we increase the amount of people out in public. Right. Still no hope for any um, schools or bands over where you are either, though. No, no, those are pretty shut down and mm-hmm. um, we'll see how that develops through time. Well, I might, I might touch a little bit more on it later on, if you don't mind, Randy, just to kind of sure. touch on, on how things have been handled where, where you are as well, because I know we're all looking to try and 
find a, a roadmap here for how we return to our activity. Randy, I first had the opportunity to meet you, um, Is it? I think it's last year, um, just Midwest. after DCI finals, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think I had been briefly introduced to you at Midwest, uh, but yeah. really it was just after DCI finals that I got to spend a good bit of time with our mutual yeah. friend Greg Murr, um, where we did a bit of a tour around Ireland looking at possible concert opportunities for, for your, your community band when they come over. Um, what I didn't realize uh, was that when I had been over at DCI Finals that you had actually been the, the music judge at DCI Finals. So, yeah. Randy, you're a, a very well-known music educator, community band leader, uh, judge for DCI and BOA, WGI. Um, you, you've, you've really sort of um, experienced, the, it every, uh, experienced it all when it comes to banding over in the U.S., yeah, it's uh, it's been something that I've been involved in for a very, very long time. And um, it's kind of interesting how I got involved with it. I was uh, I was a drum major at Illinois State University where I went for my undergrad. And we always hosted a, a big invitational uh, as a fundraiser for the university and uh, for the music program. And uh, I used to talk to the judges all the time. And um, one of them in particular said, you know, you ought to really try think about doing this. It's going to make you a better educator. And so I went through mm. some training and and uh, here I am and and um, it's I enjoy it I enjoy it. So 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 tell me, um, you you so you've been pretty much judging from very early on in your career. You you didn't sort of wait to do twenty years as a director first no. and then head into judging. This right. was something that you were kind of doing hand in hand with being an educator. I I, I really want to kind of deep dig, uh, dig deeper into that. So, um, how has being a judge made you a better educator? Well, I think part of it is is just um, being very very aware of the importance of fundamentals. Um, not that I wouldn't have had that as a music ed major, but just the importance of the the omni importance that's put on that. Um, in marching band, you know, it's, I always laugh because, you know, there are some out there that still bash marching band as not being a legitimate uh, music making experience. But I think it actually, in many ways, uh, if done correctly, um, allows a director to really, really focus on pedagogy and fundamentals of sound. And, and I think I learned at a very early time in my career that, that judging was going to allow me to see what was possible. And I think it's very, very easy if you're an educator, um, particularly if you teach in a smaller area where you don't get a lot of exposure to other groups. Um, right. Judging allowed me to get that. I mean, I was traveling all over the country being able to adjudicate. I was very, very fortunate that some people who had, you know, was, were willing to take a chance on me. And I, I really worked at the craft. Um, I think it's something that you do have to work at and you have to take it seriously. It's not something that you can, that not necessarily you can just do. Um, there was a lot of practice ahead of time before I even went out and adjudicated my first event. Um, a lot of testing and processes. And I was very fortunate at the time to, uh, you know, be with an association that really did a good job at training uh, between DCI and, and some of the Midwest judging circuits. I was able to get the training I needed at a, at a young age to be able to, to forge that, um, mm -hmm. you know, that confidence to be able to go out and do it. And, and tell me the um, your your background actually. Uh, just to go back a, a little bit further before we delve a little bit sure. deeper into the judging, your background um, was as a trumpet player first. 
Yes, yes. Yeah, and you still actively play quite often yeah. as well. I, 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 I don't, right. unfor- unfortunately, I don't play uh, as much as I'd like, but mm-hmm. I thought when I retired from full-time band directing that I'd get to play a lot, but Con Summer keeps me pretty busy. Um, <laughs> right. I, I used to play... You retired a, for uh, another full-time job, is that right? <laughs> right, exactly, <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> uh, no, I was playing in a, a big band for about 14 or 15 years. It was a semi-pro big band that was very, very enjoyable to play in. We did a series of um, concerts, artist concerts, usually oh, six or seven times a year. So between that and rehearsals, I was really keeping my chops up. And then that group disbanded. Um, and so I haven't had you know the opportunity to really go out and find another group to be mm-hmm. a part of. And now that I'm doing the, the conducting thing full time with the community band, it hasn't really afforded that opportunity. But it's really kind of funny how I got my start on trumpet because you know, you go to your first um, instrument display, um, and of course, this would have been back in the mid-70s for me, um, and I had made up my mind that I was going to play drums. You know, my dad was my dad was a drummer. Um, he was from Rhode Island, and he was one of the early, in one of the early parade drum corps uh, that marched on the East Coast, and they used to just do field inspections and parade marching, and that was pretty much it, but he started teaching me rudiments as a young kid, and I went in and I'm going to play drums. And the band director looked at me and said, Hey kid, you realize, you know, there's going to be like 20 other kids playing drums. You're not going to get to play very much. I was like, Oh man, that's kind of a drag. And my friend across the street that lived across from me goes, well, I think I'm going to play cornet. And I said, all right, I'll try that. So that's what I ended up doing. Uh, I started in fifth grade on cornet and, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of, and, and it turned out to be the right, you know, it turned out to be the right fit for me. That's interesting, actually, that you started off in Cornet because over in Ireland and in Britain, we would have a lot of younger brass players will start on on Cornet. It would be fairly regular. And actually, in fact, a lot of bands will have Cornet as its primary primary brass instrument rather than trumpet. Um, Whereas, from what I see, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I see a lot of bands starting their kids on trumpet over in the US, not on Cornet. And yet, it's kind of standard, it's kind of accepted here that cornet is the is probably the, the best instrument to start on it's a freer blowing brass instrument right. um is there any reason why 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 people have moved away from cornet as being a, a better beginner instrument in the u.s i mean i guess i've never really thought about it too much but i guess may, maybe potentially you know i started in fifth grade there are still some bands out on the east coast uh, new york in that area that start in the fourth or fifth grade uh, most programs start in the sixth now hmm. and i think that some of it has to do with the size of the instrument right and and realizing that the tolerance is that you know we're not gonna a uh, parent's not willing to maybe spend the money on nice. buying a cornet and then transferring to a trumpet and then transferring hmm. to a step up i think maybe the step up market has increased um the, the the ease of people deciding to play trumpet because you trade your trumpet in and you can get a step up instrument for a little bit better price because the depreciation value on a trumpet may be a little bit better um but yeah i think that's part of it uh but i suppose we start our children a little bit younger here as well i think that's probably part of it part of it too too. i mean you it's not it's not it's not that surprising to have kids starting at seven or eight years of age over here um whereas that's just a, a little on the young side over in the u.s i mean i'd prefer to start my kids later here you know but right. i just don't have that option if i don't start them when they're seven or eight when they're interested they'll go and find something else to be part of and i won't get them when they're 10 exactly. um, so i suppose that might, might might be part of it as well but it's interesting i mean i've always preferred the 
trumpet sound as part of the band sound, but um, I know there's a huge cohort of people that are adamant that the cornet sound is the is the better sound for a wind band, um, and including all the British military bands too, for that matter. You know. Well, and I will say that um, when when I taught in the last 25 years, I taught I bought uh, six cornets, and I used you know I would have a trumpet section. And depending on the literature we were playing with the wind ensemble, we would play all cornets or we would do four cornets and four trumpets, you know, depending on parts. Right. If there were so they jump parts. between. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Because it does it does make a difference in terms of the the warmth of mm-hmm. sound and the lushness of the sound and the combination of those two things. And and depending on the arranging, if the trumpet parts are written a little bit more like orchestral trumpet parts, like true trumpet parts. Then it does. Then the cornet kind of fills that gap within the coloratura voice with the French horns, and it it, it makes some things a little bit different. Mm-hmm. No, it's um, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting debate here. Actually, <laughs> a lot of the time, our military bands all use all use use cornet as well. So yeah. you started off as a uh, as a cornet trumpet player uh, and moved then on to. At, at what point had you already decided by the time you were moving into college that you were going to head the music education route, or had you um, uh, any idea that maybe you wanted to be a performer at one point? Um, a lot, a lot more people, I think, in the U.S. rather than elsewhere in the world, go to college with the idea that they want to be a music educator. Uh, over here, and 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 you know, uh, uh, there are huge amounts of exceptions to this, of course. So I'm I'm, I'm speaking sure. very broadly, but a lot of people will go to study music performance here. And having done music performance, and um, they will then come to music education afterwards, particularly from an instrumental point of view. Um, certainly, right. there are music education courses that people will go off to to study to become a music educator in an academic setting. But if you're going to be a music instrumentalist educator then you probably study performance first. Um, how was it for you? What was your, what was your preference at, at, at leaving high school? I think I probably, like every person my age, especially as a trumpet player growing up in the age of Maynard Ferguson, and <laughs> I think we all wanted to be that guy, right? And um, when, I, when I realized that I was not going to be that person, um, I, I started thinking about teaching because – uh, both my sisters didn't teach music. They taught one taught art, the other one taught elementary. Um, so I came from a little bit of a teaching family. My dad was a, a graphic artist and a musician, but he um, worked for McDonnell Douglas, which built all the, the F-15s and, the, and worked in the Gemini space program. So he had that kind of background. But we were all kind of involved in the arts in that fashion. And he mm-hmm. taught some art lessons on the side, too, to make some extra income. So I, I sort of came from a family of teachers in that regard. Um, right. I, I think early on, I enjoyed helping peers and teaching them how to do things. I mean, I, I know that um, I just always kind of had the, the knack to, to do that and enjoyed doing that. Um, so when I went to college, yeah, I thought I, I need a degree. And my parents told me, they said, you know, you're not going to you're probably not going to make a great living as a musician. So you need to have something that's you can fall back on. So at least get a music ed degree if you want us to pay for it. So. <laughs> So that's what I ended up doing. And, and um, you know, my dad even went further to say, look, I, I think, you know, I don't know if you can make any money at this band director thing. So I want you to get a minor. And I'm like, 
you know, it's kind of like Vincent Bach, right? His stepdad made him get an engineering degree. Right. Uh, you're not going to be a musician, right? Um, <laughs> of course, I didn't get an engineering degree. I got a public relations degree. Uh, mine. Ah, okay. Well, that uh, makes sense. Yeah, I can see so, that. I can see that. But, uh, you know, if I hadn't have taught music, I probably would have taught, I probably would have taught English or writing because I was okay. really into that. And I was kind of juggling. I mean, my, my high school professor, she had her doctorate in, in English language and she was really pushing me to go into that. Well, and and uh, is, is that has that have you maintained that passion for for English and literature and I have I mean I, I I I'm in the process of slowly starting to put together a book that I'd like to share at some point you know on just helping um, college kids with some things that they don't necessarily learn at the university level okay. as a resource for them and I'm kind of using the 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 time that I've spent with webinars and things like that to kind of sift through the kind of material I want to put in it but um, I just, at this point for me in my career, I, I, it's more about giving back. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm really glad that I did go into the music ed profession because I think that there's so much, uh, it's such a small group of people, you know, everybody knows everybody. We, right. all, support, we all support each other and it's, uh, it's been a really good thing. Well, it's part of the concept of this this global band room that, you know, idea. I mean, it was more than just sort of an idea, a clever idea for a podcast. It, it really was about trying to bring people together that we all kind of talk to each other all the time. And, we, we, you know, now at the moment we have we can't leave our home. So why not be able to talk to each other? Um, yeah, it's I, I have to say, I agree with you. I love the idea that we can go into Midwest or, you know, any any of these conventions and just, you know, it's a big gathering of people that know each other, uh, but don't see each other from maybe one convention to the next, but stay in touch with you. I mean, social media has played a huge part in, in, in bringing that world closer together, I think, too. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the pandemic, if it had happened 25 years ago, I mean, what? I can't imagine, you know, yeah. people not having that connection. And I think the one thing that this will, and I know we were going to talk about this a little bit, but I think the one thing that, that will come out of this is we will um, globally learn how to share, um, you know, things better. I think mm -hmm. that, um, like you were saying, in Europe, obviously, and in, in Ireland, you know, the tendency is still for people to go into being professional musicians, but there's still a great demand, I know, for information. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, this virtual experience will hopefully open up some eyes to allow people to get that information without having to necessarily travel to get it, you know? Right. And that's, that's a powerful um, thing. I, I mean, I've seen musicians here in Ireland that uh, I mean, look, there's plenty of the musicians that have been doing these recordings that have that that have had plenty of opportunities uh, across their careers. But I'm but I'm watching some of the musicians I know for a fact have never played outside of their own um, town band or their own community band, right. and now they're playing recording themselves for the Lone Star Wind Orchestra or they're recording themselves for the Polish Wind Orchestra. You know, it's um, it's amazing. I mean, like really a, a huge shout out to anybody who has put together one of these big virtual band projects and and opened it up to so many people around the world because um, it's really given people uh, amazing opportunities. Um, so uh, I mean. Let's that brings us nicely on to 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 what the work you've been doing actually. I think it, I think we we might as well get into that now, Randy. Um, sure. So obviously we've been talking a little bit about your 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 background as a music educator and as a judge. And when you retired, you took up a, ni a nice retirement gig, <laughs> which is probably as much work as 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 when you were teaching um, with Con Selmer as their as one of their music education consultants. Tell me a little bit about that role first of all before we talk on talk 
and talk about what Con Selmer are doing right now at the moment. Sure. Well, you know, it wasn't easy leaving teaching. I mean, I'd taught for 32 years, and I think I had just gotten to a point where I felt like the marching band thing, which which really you have to be all in or, you know, all out. And and I really, I had done it for such a long time and just really felt like maybe it was time for me to, to let some of the young guys come in and do, do some of it. Um, and I, this opportunity came along through uh, Tim Lutzenheiser. Uh, he had been talking to me for a while about, you know, what do you want to do after you're done teaching? And it just, the stars kind of aligned. We were getting ready to do the Rose Parade um, for the last time with my group. And um, I had interviewed in the fall with Con Sommer and the opportunity came about to be able to do it. And it looked like I was going to be able to do the things that I wanted to do as a retired band director, but do them on a little bit more of a bigger scale. And so I, I took the position with Con Summer as an educational support manager. And essentially, all of us are instrumental music people. Um, right. Obviously, Con Summer is an instrument company. Um, but the Division of Education, uh, through Mike Campfeis and Tim Lutzenizer, has grown exponentially. It used to be one person, and it's now right. 20, 20 plus. Yeah, be because, I mean, I've, I've become very aware of Con Summer over the last year and a half, personally, um, uh -huh. uh, you know. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm also aware that there's other companies out there. I won't name sure. any of them that, oh, that, that, sure. that are also doing something similar, but certainly not on the same scale as what Con Selmer are doing. Uh, Con Selmer seem to be every time that I that I meet someone, so, sometimes they, they, they'll say they're doing some sort of work for Con Selmer, you know, um, uh, and, and it, it seems to be really um it, on, on such a bigger scale than what other companies are doing, it, it seems to be at the heart of what the company is trying to do. Yeah, I think it's it's been you know it's been the dream of Tim Lutzenheiser and and, and hmm. back um, back when John Stoner was the CEO and they they started the program. Um, the the dream was get instruments in every single kid's hands who wants them. You know, from a standpoint right. standpoint of affordability and quality and everything. And there's a lot of great music uh, industry partners out there. There's no doubt about that. It's just that this is where we. Just, you know, this is where Tim wanted to hang his hat. Um, he really wanted to build this into something. He felt like music educators that came out of universities couldn't be completely equipped with everything they need because there's just not enough time to cover everything you need to know to be a successful music educator. So that's kind of how it all started. And then it, it's exploded into other areas. And a lot of mm. the initiatives that we have have come from talking to educators about what we can do to support them. So that's where the inventory, the free inventory system has come from. That's where Consumer Institute has come from. That's where the clinician roster has come from. That's where some of the grant writing stuff has come from. We're just trying to find ways to support because we know that if every student gets the opportunity to experience instrumental music or music of any kind, it's going to make them a better person. It's going to make mm -hmm. society better. Um, and that in turn is going to help all of the music industry partners as well because they'll have right product that they can that can be purchased more so more people participating this yeah i mean yeah. more the more people that are participating the better and we don't need everyone to be a professional <laughs> you right. know right. um absolutely need, not i mean you know some of, some of my closest friends um you know i, I played saxophone professionally for years and, the, and i always joke that the irony of being a professional saxophone player is that i can't afford the really nice saxophone right. <laughs> it's the amateur players that are going off and doing banking and getting jobs that can pay can actually afford to buy it so but 
but you're right. right. The more people participating in the activity on any level as a student or as an amateur in local community bands, um, that's going to be good for business as a whole. And and I and I love the Conselmer can see that you know i love that right. that that there's a, there's a good business sense in this too i mean not to be cynical about it but but there is really good business sense in what in in, in why the rest of the company supports what tim and the educational aspect is doing yeah and you know i think the other thing too is i i would have kids and i know every band director's gone through this you have that kid that maybe they're one of your better players maybe not but they they come to you their senior year right before their senior year, they say well and their parents come in with them and they say, well, we're not going to take it. Our se- we're not going to take band our senior year because, you know, they're, they're not going to be music majors. So hmm. why, you know, why should they do it? And it's like, uh, you know, the whole reason for doing it is because, you know, we tried to teach being a connoisseur of music because right. we need an audience. Right. I mean, we need audiences. We need educated audiences to listen to serious music, to listen to band literature, orchestra literature, jazz, whatever it is. You know, the, the more you educate yourself, the more you'll enjoy it. Um, and yeah, was, I've never understood that argument from parents. Uh, I'm, I suppose on on the face of it, I understand. I understand right. the, 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 you know, the flawed logic, in it, I suppose. <laughs> right. um, but in the, in, you know, they've 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 from the age of the, from the from the time that the child has been seven or eight, they've instilled these values of art and education. Um, and in fact, it's it's a great thing if your ten year old can play a tune for the rest of the family. It's this thing that you know you're bringing right. your child around to every family member and get them to play for them. And then ten years later, we teach these children a lesson that actually it's not a priority. And right. I think that's really damaging. I mean, the way that we're set up in in schools here in 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 Europe, I think is it can even can even be worse for that because because it's an extracurricular activity. Extracurricular yeah. activity goes out the window. It's not it's not getting any school credit whatsoever. So it goes completely out the out the window during during those final exam years. I'm not sure that it's a great lesson to be teaching. I could talk all day on that particular one though. Um, tell me about the free instrument bank that, uh, or the, the, the instrument inventory that, that can I, I hadn't heard about sure. that before. Well, it actually got started. Um, there was a band director that came to what we call one of our VIP days, which is an opportunity for Tim to bring some directors in and tour the factories in Elkhart, Indiana. And, um, they always ask one question of the directors, like if you had one thing that you needed, what would it be? And this particular director said, man, I, I really need something to keep track of my instruments but not just keep track of them, but something that will tell me that based on the age of the instrument, how it's depreciated over time so that I can present a case for my school board mm. to get some new instruments. Cause our instruments are like 30 years old. And so Mike Campfeist, the managing director of the division of education went to work on things and did some research and they developed a database that um, it basically is, is formatted on an Excel spreadsheet. And then that gets uploaded into a web platform and that's all based on a depreciative value that was set by NAM and by the uh, uh, National Achievement Council, a Music Achievement Council, um, that established those parameters. It wasn't established by anybody in the industry. That'd be a little bit of a nepotism right. issue there. But um, so they've, they've established the standard of depreciative value. And so that's how the system is set up. So you can literally do a report, um, assuming that you have the, the date. Uh, the instrument was manufactured or at least close to a date because after 15 years, an instrument depreciates anyway. 
So mm. down to down to about two percent, and anything past that, it's not worth anything. And CFOs, that's the way they talk, right? They talk about school buses that way. They talk about copiers yeah. and and computers that way. And it's really helped music educators frame things for their for their CFOs and for their superintendents and their school community um, beyond just hey, I need this, um, where they're mm -hmm. competing with athletics and clubs and everything else that needs resources. So. It's really been a difference maker. And we've got about, I think, 11,000 um, different schools that are on this system now. And well, um, yeah, it's, it's web-based, so all the student data is secure. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a really, really cool thing. And we continue to do some improvements to it over time. You can track repairs. Um, you can check instruments out to students and it'll track that for you. You can upload pictures of the instruments so you know what condition they were in when you issued them. You know, cool. uh, we, a lot of the time, uh, time European bands, we don't have to necessarily apply to uh, school boards for our funding, but we do have to right. apply to, to government grants and uh, pri private uh, funding and so on. Um, I, I'd see something like this would hugely help uh, bands for their cash flow, because if you can plan five years, 10 years, 20 years, that capital investment, um, and bands don't plan like that. Bands tend to plan, right. not saying every band, I'm not the saying every band, but certainly a lot of the bands band. I've been part of. Right. right. Yeah. It's like, oh, we need a tuba. Band. And all of a sudden that meter comes out on the front door of the band room again. And we're filling up the meter to buy the new tuba, you know, but but seriously, if everything. If we if we if we had an idea of how much of an investment we needed to make each year because of the depreciating value, I think it'd be hugely helpful to bands. So that's a really clever idea. Uh, so credit to um to, to, to the Con Selmer family for for for, for uh, coming up with that concept. Yeah, oh, thanks, Keith. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so, so obviously, the the big thing this year is COVID nineteen. Um, but before we suppose we get into that, the Conselmer Institute. Um, I've been aware of the Conselmer Institute for a number of years, um, mm -hmm. but I've never had the, the the opportunity to attend it. Tell me a little bit about what it normally looks like and what the 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 motive behind developing it was. Sure, uh, it's normally a three and a half uh, day to professional development uh, event for educators. Um, we usually max it out. We, we, because of the venue that we, we hold it on a, a small college campus, a, a liberal arts college called Bethel College, which is between Elkhart, Indiana and Mishawaka. Very beautiful campus, but it's very quaint. Um, so we have to limit it to about 450 attendees. Um, and uh, they, they do three and a half days of professional development. We bring in um, some of the finest clinicians in the world um, people like Larry Livingston, Richard Saucedo, um, you know, the list goes on and on. Paula Kreider, um, the list goes on and on. Tro Frank Troika. Um, and they basically teach tracks. Um, so if you're a director that's going for the first time, you'll get slotted into a track based on, you know, what you've attended in the past. Uh, because we have people that come back regularly every year. We've had mm. some people that have attended, you know, 10 years straight. So our idea is we want to give everybody something new each year. Um, there are reading bands. There's reading orchestras. We added an orchestra track two years ago. Um, Suhan runs that. Um, and so essentially, you know, it's basically just an exchange. Um, it's a learning opportunity. They can get um, college credits through, they can get graduate credits through, um, um, through Vandercook. Um, cool. They can get professional development credits depending on what their state allows. Um, and it's only three and a half days. It goes by really quick. We bring in groups mm. all the time. We've had Canadian brass perform. We've had, uh, many of our artists come and perform um, in the past. And so that's the really cool part of the of the live event. The other cool part of it is, 
you know, most music conferences, it's a sit and get, and then you're done with the clinician. The clinicians hang around all week. And so you go to breakfast, right. lunch, and dinner with them. You have the opportunity to interact with them and, and, and further up your, um, your learning. The other, and, and the other, as opposed to like the likes of Midwest or any big uh, right. conventions where, as you say, it's, it's, it's a sit and get. And then if you, if you're able to grab some of these big clinicians for like two minutes to, to be able to shake their hand and tell them that you really admire them and then they're gone again. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And then um, we have a music administrator track. that's basically a think tank of music administrators or department administrators from all over the country they come together with Gary Markham and they focus with Nola Jones and Gary Markham on, you know, problem solving uh, for large arts programs. Um, they usually pick one book every year and that's the book that they hand out just to, as a, as a takeaway from those, from those sessions. Um, and then we have um, a collegiate session uh, geared for um, young music educators that are still at the university um, that can come and they get a little business card and they, they, they walk around like a band director all, or an orchestra director all week and they get to, you know, hand out their business card and they get Frank Troika heads that up and, and they go through some mock interviews. Um, That's some of them, yeah. Some of them have just graduated. We've got some industry partners that come and set up booths sort of like the West, but not on the same scale. Um, but they, those booths uh, have educators there and they get to interview um, some of the candidates from the universities. And it's a really great, great three and a half days of learning environment. And last year we added what we call the music, uh, or I'm sorry, the marching band track, which was uh, a tag on um, the, the, the event starts on a Sunday afternoon and ends on a Wednesday at noon. And at 1.30 that same day on Wednesday, we started the marching band track for those who wanted to stay. We only, we kept it to 50 people. And um, myself, Nola Jones, uh, Lindsay Vento, um, did marching band planning and show design um, for 50 attendees. And they got an opportunity to bring their shows in and do consultations with us at the end of the week. And we expanded that this year. Um, we had the, we had our virtual first virtual one about three weeks ago. And we had over 150 attendees. Wow. And we've got another one coming up in June. And that one's going to be easily up over 150 as well. So it's exciting. I think um, I think the things that we're offering, we're always trying to be relevant I think that's mm -hmm. something that's always really, really important is staying relevant. Things are, things are coming at us so quickly now because of technology that um, just trying to absorb all of it is uh, is a challenge, you know? And Well, I so. mean, the most relevant thing to us right now at the moment is obviously the situation that we're in. Um, and obviously, uh, I mean, Con Selmer Institute can't go ahead this year, certainly in the, in the, in the form that it normally takes. Um, so, you guys have done a mammoth task in turning the uh, Conselmer Institute into an online seminar this year. I mean, for anyone that listens to the podcast regularly, they'll know that I've been mentioning this at the beginning of every podcast for the last right. 16 episodes. So now they actually get to hear someone actually talking about it that's actually put the put the thing together. Um, first of all, I mean, I talked to you before the podcast started. Uh, that's been a massive amount of work for you and the team to put to, to, to do to change all of, all of that to get what's been the biggest challenge? I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, it's a huge challenge. But you know, for what's been the biggest challenge from going live to going on a webinar, aside from just putting a camera in front of people? I think, you know, just considering the possibilities, and I, I think that Steve Zaff, our, our new CEO for Con Summer, um, is brilliant from a standpoint of just understanding how to forecast and look at things and say, 
but what if, you know, and, mm. and we at the very, very early stages of this crisis in March, um, you know, when others were saying, well, we're probably not going to do anything. And everybody was asking about CSI, um, C, um, CSI. Now he said, well, let's just rebrand it for this year and call it CSI Connect. Uh, we're going to connect with people virtually. Um, Steve's a big supporter of technology as a, as a teaching device. Um, Nola Jones, who's our um, director of um, educational initiatives, has done, you know, mammoth work. Uh, putting a curriculum together, getting additional clinicians. And, and they looked at this platform as an opportunity to really expand our reach. And I think right now we're a little over 1,400 people that have signed up, um, which is, you know, triple what we would have at the live event. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we believe that we could easily have over 2,000 people uh, take part. Um, wow. it's, and, and it's, I think, I think the, the scope of it is something that, you know, we can continue to build out. But we basically took the structure and the format and just expanded it and tried to figure out what the best way delivery, how, how delivery was going to work mm -hmm. um, so that people were able to interact. And we've actually hired a consultant, Elisa Jansen Jones, who's done a lot of webinar work. Um, she was a former band director in Arizona, and she's basically an expert on delivering webinars and platforms. And she's done a tremendous job setting the platform up for us and I think it's going to be great. I'm really, really excited about it. The neat thing about this is going to be that attendees can go to, I think I was telling you this before the podcast, you know, attendees, typically if they were at the live event, they would go in their track and they would miss some things right. in other tracks that they might yeah. want to cherry pick, right? They can cherry pick those things now because the material is going to be available to them if they registered and paid for it. They're going to be able to go back to that from now until the end of December. So that's a huge plus. December. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's huge amazing. Part. Yeah, absolutely. And and tell me the um, I mean it's a it's a it's a great opportunity for international people to get involved too. I mean you know get, going along to one of these uh, conventions as as an international person, I mean, I'm very lucky that my job, you know that's that's part of what I do. I'm, I'm right. I, I need to be at these various different conventions. Um, but if it, it was just you know my my conducting my local band, just as passionate as I am now this just wouldn't be an option for me to go to Midwest or TMEA or DCI finals. This is an opportunity to actually bring it into people's uh, living rooms. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, I'll say it straight out. I think this is going to be a huge success for you guys. And, and I think it's something that potentially could be uh, something that, that, that international people will be able to attend in the future too. Um, I, I, I love the idea of this. Yeah. And I think Nola did a great job of just basically vetting the clinicians and trying to figure out the new, kinds of things that we could offer from a curriculum standpoint that would be of interest to educators. I mean, there's going to be sessions in there about planning for this pandemic situation, you know, how right. to teach virtually, how to manage things. And, and there's going to be a lot that's going to come out of this um, that I think is going to be beneficial for educators to kind of manage because we're living in a time right now where basically all we have is our imagination, right? I mean, uh, we truly have to kind of imagine what things could be and then just live day by day and hope that um, those things can come to fruition based on the actions that we take and a little bit of luck along the way. Mm -hmm. um, but you're you're right. Things are not necessarily we're going to be changed forever, but I, right. I choose to look at it as we're going to be changed for the better. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to be able to learn how to meld these virtual experiences with live experiences to make them more meaningful for people. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be hard because I, I, I feel that the world post COVID-19, where we all leave our screens and go back into um, the real world, in a way, 
I mean, and maybe it's just more of a personal reflection, but in a way that seems like almost a contraction, <laughs> you know, because the the world has been so open. I can only like just speaking on behalf of the Irish musicians who have been, as I mentioned earlier on, have been taking part in all of these different global projects. All of a sudden, well, you know, the crisis is over. So do we just stop what was positive from that? I, I, don't, I don't think so. You know, no, not at all. I think it's all about the relationships, right? Mm. I mean, that's what makes music such an awesome experience is that the relationships that you develop, the friendships you develop, the partnerships you develop. And I think that that's what we have to, you know, when I've been talking to directors about what to focus on as they gradually ramp things back up. And I've even thought about this. I've had conversations with people in my community band about this. You know, how do you get back started? You know, how do you just start hit the ground running from where you were? I don't think that's probably wise. I think you have to figure out how you're going to roll things out. Um, and, and walk or crawl before you walk and walk before you run. But the most important thing is probably those relationships. Those are going to be the things that people are, have missed and craved the most. Mm. And, you know, you hear the saying, music brings us together. Um, you know, being able to retain, retain those virtual relationships um, with real project-based work, like you're talking about some global projects, that's a great way to sustain those relationships. Um, mm. And that's why I think it's going to be a combination of, you know, face-to-face and virtual stuff that hopefully continues because we're going to value that uh, hopefully somewhat as we move forward with our with our face-to-face relationships. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more, Randy. Um, look, it's been absolutely fantastic um, chatting to you a little bit more about this. As I mentioned, uh, you know, yeah. I have been talking about this at the beginning of every podcast. I've been saying uh-huh. it's a great opportunity for international people that haven't got an opportunity to go along to one of these professional development for band, which doesn't exist in Europe for the most part, by the way. You know, right. so it's a great opportunity for people to go along to it, be they band members, band directors, uh, music classroom educators. I think it's just going to be an amazing opportunity for people. So I'll keep singing the praises of the, uh, the uh, of the of the whole concept. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it myself. Um, Randy, where can people find out more about the uh, concept? Or, um, if they go to if they go to CSIC, CSIC dot con, C-O-N-N dash Selmer, S-E-L-M-E-R, um, dot com. They can go there and that'll take them directly to the registration page, which also shows the faculty and they can click on different buttons and it'll show them uh, basically what the entire experience is like. And uh, they can certainly reach out to me if they want to. My email address is rgreenwell at uh, con-selmer.com. Um, or they can reach out to you and you can connect with me and be happy to. Yeah. And, the, and the one thing I would tell them is we've had a, a pretty good international presence, even during the live event. We've had uh, people from Australia um, and, and the general UK area that have come out um, for the live event um, here and there through Tim's connections, because he obviously travels the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's going to be a, a larger presence of, of global um people out there. And, and I think that they'll really enjoy themselves and they'll get the opportunity to interact. That was the other thing I was going to tell you is that the way the platform is set up, it'll be set up in such a way that they'll get some takeaways. They'll, they'll get some things that they can put their hands on from a paper standpoint that we'll post links to that they can grab. But there's also going to be an opportunity for them to interact through a chat room um, and, and have a real good opportunity to ask questions. It's not going to be just a sit and get. Um, there's going to be a real um, give and take to the the way the platform is set up. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really excited about it, because I don't think that we're just setting up a set of videos that people can sit there and watch. We're actually setting up an experience that I think they're really, really going to appreciate. 
I think that's key um, from our own virtual band project that we did, the Ireland's Call project. Um, people enjoyed recording themselves and submitting that 90 second video, but actually it was the weeks of interaction through Facebook and uh, yep. the group, which is now called the Global Bandroom Group. Um, we have over a thousand people in that. And it was that interaction. They're still t- chatting to each other. And I mean, the, the project yep. is over weeks now at this stage and we've premiered the whole thing. Um, so it's, it's, it is that interaction that people are missing but also i mean realistically the most the busiest part of midwest when we all go to it is the is the is the floor where everyone yeah. is meeting you know and, right. and the bars and the bars right <laughs> yeah, the clinics too, are important man. you know yeah, but right you know yeah, we like to meet each other and we like to talk yeah so yeah. i think i think you've hit the nail on the head i think that's that's uh that's really important i think and that's great to see that that's um, a, a a priority for 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 you as well Absolutely. Randy, thank you so much for 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 popping along, and and I'd love to have you back at some stage. I, I'd like to sure. be able to check back in with um, with everyone. So maybe post uh, um, uh, Conselmer Connect, we might bring you back in and see how the whole thing went, and um, yeah. get a bit of a post event summary from you. Yeah, and it'd be great to uh, to maybe do a little snippet with the community band for you guys, and and do the podcast there or something. Yeah, I, I'd love that. Cool. Yeah, awesome. Brilliant. Randy, thanks so much. Stay safe. Yes, be careful. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.